Perceptions Podcast. Tolerance towards the perceived oppressor is a human rights violation, or so to speak, and such tolerance must be and ought to be removed, violently if necessary. Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. So how about this? I still recall the first Christmas party I attended. I was five, I think. We were five, uh, my twin brother and I. And my dad at the time worked in the production line of a firm in Northern Ireland called British Enkelon. It was a nylon production firm. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Based near Belfast, where we lived. And every year, the company threw a Christmas party for all the children of the production line workers, of which my father was one of them. So I would have been five, and within six months, we were living in Australia, so it was that long ago. Moving to this side of the world, the side I still live, was to get away from the Troubles. And the Troubles refer to the increasingly troubled low-grade civil war and terror attacks that plagued Northern Ireland up until, at least technically, the Good Friday Agreement in 1999. Now what about that party? I remember cake and trifle and of course Santa. I googled it and I found a whole ream of archived black and white photos from British Enkelon, including those Christmas parties. And I looked through the photos and there, well I didn't see us, but rows and rows of tables at Christmas parties with my brother and I in there somewhere I'm sure. Every boy's wearing plastic hats and checked flared pants and the girls are all in corduroy and those cable knit jumpers and bowl cut haircuts. And there's an extremely scary looking, and it has to be said, worn out Santa Claus, who looks more like he had just worked the production line for eight hours and then came over to us. And in the photos, there's Allison dolls for the girls, and I can't remember what the boys got. But all the young factory men look middle-aged. All the middle-aged men look old. All the old ones looked, well, what comes after old? But that's those photos. So here we are coming up to 51 Christmases later, And a lot has changed, yes, including, I found out, the closure of British Enkelon in 1985, hence the photo archive. But one thing that hasn't changed, and it sticks in my mind, whether it was there in Northern Ireland aged five or just a few years later, while watching TV on Christmas Day, is the sound of a news announcer at some stage in the day observing that someone the Pope probably, not sure how that went down in Northern Ireland, or someone famous and political, issuing a call for peace on Christmas Day. Every year for those 50 odd years that I could remember it on on TV. And it feels like launder, rinse, repeat. So as I said, I can't remember when I started remembering that call for peace. I remember it from last year and the year before and the year before that, you get the point. 
You see, lots of traditions change over the years, what we eat at Christmas, how we celebrate, and who we celebrate with. But you can count on a call for world peace on the news somewhere on Christmas Day, with video shots of Christmas in Bethlehem. But of course, this year, the calls might be the same, except for the fact that there will be no Christmas celebrations in Bethlehem this year, no official ones at least, no call on camera for the elusive desired peace, given the war and all that that's going on at the moment. The call for peace seems as perpetual at Christmas as the inability to land the deal. There's always some horror doing the rounds, and the call seems to become more mealy-mouthed as the years notch up for me, or perhaps that's just my grinchy cynicism kicking in after all those calls for peace. And as things would have it, the Israel-Gaza conflict has demonstrated not just the fact that actual war is ramping up, but it also feels we're on the brink of something else, something deeper. It seems that we will sit down this Christmas after a well-earned meal and watch the news online, or wherever it's from, that trots out the same trope. The trope that now seems as old and as quaint and as otherworldly as those black and white Christmas photos from British Ankelon. Let's hear it for world peace for another year when it hasn't happened in all the years before. But it seems to me that something else has changed too, something different. We're living in, as Carl Truman puts it in his book, A Strange New World, a strange new world, riffing on Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. There's a tone to the conversations, a sharp bite to contested ideas in the West that has ramped up this year across all these nations that we uh, would call the West. And we see the divisions politically are now hotter and more intractable than what we've had in some time. This Israel-Gaza war has been brewing up for over a decade or so, and the conversation has really ramped up during the past six years as the heat has built, especially in the United States of America. Though let's remember, the rest of us catch the cold that the USA sneezes. And we've seen the Trump and then Biden issues, and those embers of conflict, that culture war, has been fanned into flames with the current strife in Gaza, kicked off by the shocking attacks of October 7. You see, the war is no longer out there on our TV screens as we sit around in our post-Christmas dinner drink. It's no longer a foreign event. This Christmas, it feels more like a mood, and definitely feels more here rather than there. Something beyond a simple call for peace to bring an end to an actual war is needed, but I'm not sure the conditions are there among us to bring about such an end. So what's going on? Why is it hard to meet the conditions to bring about peace in this culture war, never mind the actual war that we're seeing overseas? Well, I think the primary reason is this. The fault lines in the culture war are not so clearly delineated as they are in actual war. Now, let me explain that a little bit. As I was looking through those old photographs, wasting time online from British Enkelon's time in Northern Ireland, 
I found myself drawn to reading the names in the captions, names of people long since dead, or at least in their dotage now. And, as Northern Irish people tend to do, I casually, unthinkingly, started sorting out the two categories. I looked at the names. Billy McMaster. Well, that's a Protestant name. Rory O'Neill. Most likely Catholic. Mary Finnegan. Definitely Catholic. That was the thing about the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Despite the awful deaths, the bombings, the trauma, the victims, the horror, it was something like a football match, a game of two halves, and you kind of knew the rules. You kind of knew which side everyone was on. There was the Protestant loyalist half and the Catholic nationalist half, and a great big peace wall, and a great big peace wall dividing the city of Belfast in half. Red, white and blue bunting, that was a loyalist district. Green, white and gold murals on the side walls, that was a nationalist district. There was something definitely binary about all of that. You knew where each side stood. Yet the culture war doesn't seem so easy to pin down. Yes, there are markers, of course, rules, and we see these played out in issues like the celebrated issue of somewheres versus anywheres. Let me explain that. When we talk about anywheres, we're talking about people who have high levels of education and have a gig in the global world. And they could, as their title suggests, live anywhere, any big city around the Western world. They can put down roots in a city that they've never been to before, and they like that, and they have social capital and connections everywhere they go. The somewheres are very different. Somewheres live in a specific place with extended family for quite a period of time. Their lives are rooted in community life. They are less tertiary educated. They are aspirational as well, but they have different aspirations. That's the somewheres, very rooted in location, and the anywheres, well, they could live, as it says, anywhere. And we see these divisions most clearly in how our world is put together. There's a Western secular world versus an Eastern religious world, and many of the anywheres are Western and secular. There's also Western individualism versus Eastern communalism, and we see that divide in our world as well. Yet some things are not so easy to figure out. So I was in Melbourne City recently, and there was a huge, and it was huge, protest for Palestine clogging the streets. And there were many, many Middle Eastern people in the mix, people who would be Eastern religion and Eastern community, very traditional people. But it wasn't exclusively so. I could see many young families as if they were on an outing with their children with their faces painted, dressed up like those from Melbourne's hipster inner suburbs, with posters of Israel's Prime Minister sporting a Hitler moustache, and signs that said, silence is violence. And it was almost like they were challenging those of us walking up the street past them, why are you not here with us? And it was interesting watching thousands of young Chinese students, ignoring it all, walking down the street and going about their day shopping or in restaurants. And I found myself wondering what it would be like to be a Jew in Melbourne on that day, because the anger was barely restrained. There's that sign, silence is violence, where does that come from? Yet in some quarters, because of that sign, actual violence is not violence. If it's enacted against someone who is higher up the totem pole of privilege, so to speak. 
Silence is violence is a way of saying that a physically violent response to a group that has more power is actually not true violence. No, the true violence is what has been done over time to strip power from the powerless. And any act of actual violence is part of the pathway of reparation. And therefore, any silence in the face of that is actually violence. Do you get that? It's complicated. The rules of engagement in this cultural war are messy. And it seems that the current conflict in Gaza has brought these things to the surface. Now, this was manifested most clearly in the recent congressional hearings in the United States into anti-Semitism on the Ivy League university campuses there. Now, if the culture wars have been playing out anywhere at all, it's in the elite and not-so-elite universities in that nation. And there was a time when the culture wars could be dismissed as quibbles over gender and sexuality, and that what happens on campus stays on campus. Or more likely, what happens in a certain section of the campus, the humanities department, stays in that certain section. But ideas, like glaciers, travel. Often like glaciers, they travel slowly. But every now and then, something heats them up, and they move apace. And that's exactly what's happened here. And in the recent hearings in Congress, in which three university presidents were put on the spot, they could not state unequivocally that calls for genocides against Jewish people on campus was an act of violence towards Jewish students, and that the issue depended on context, highlighted this huge fault line in the culture war. And it raised all sorts of questions and contradictions. Who gets to do violence with impunity, and who should just sit and take it? How can it be a violent act in the context of a group of people who, according to critical theory, are higher up the totem pole than others? Now, leaving aside the Holocaust, and believe me, it is being left aside, the standard response in modern critical theory in the context of the Middle East conflict the Jews are the oppressors. In the context of global reach and cultural influence, the Jews are the rulers. And in the context of racial mix, the Jews are now classed as white. You put that all together and you have oppressive winning white people. What's not to hate there? What's not to seek to do violence to in order to bring peace to other people? And that's exactly why at a protest, someone can hold up a placard that says Queers for Palestine with no sense of irony at all. You see, oppressed people recognise each other. The true irony is that the one country in the Middle East that not only tolerates but actively champions gay people is Israel. But because in our critical theory land, queerness is ostensibly a matter of being on the outer and being oppressed, queerness identifies with Palestine, even if, as so many shocked responses from Palestinians demonstrated, Palestinians as a conservative Muslim community don't identify with that community itself. Now, I mix all of this into the ideas of critical theory from our universities, and what you get is that tolerance in liberal society is viewed with suspicion. Perhaps it should not be tolerated because it's a mask for intolerance. Tolerance as an idea, it is said, is repressively baked into our system in order to keep real oppressions going. And the point of protest is to unmask that. Tolerance towards the perceived oppressor 
is a human rights violation, or so to speak. And such tolerance must be unmasked, must be and ought to be removed, violently if necessary. I wonder if you can see where all this might lead us. So in order to bring about true tolerance of the oppressed, we are not supposed to settle for false tolerance that those with power would insist upon in which all sides respect each other. To do so would be to allow deep intolerance to reign. Now this all sounds a little bit complicated, but it does mean, for example, that the refusal to use a pronoun of someone on campus must be met with the harshest, most humiliating response that you can muster, because that's how justice has to be seen to be done. And the culture wars have played this out for years now. And as I said, for many people, it's been something of a hit and a giggle, a civil war confined to the sandstone universities among students who will probably have that bred out of them by the time they get to the real world. Yet as we are only now discovering on university campuses across the West, a microaggression can be spotted at 40 paces, jobs can be lost, reputations shredded. Yet when a serious question around anti-Semitism comes up, in which those same campuses are places that Jewish students are now fearing to tread, with language that presumes their genocide is the option, the answer to members of Congress from university presidents is that such language is a matter of context. And that seems slightly odd. Perhaps it might seem crazy to you. Yet that is the only answer possible for a theory that says everybody must fit into one of two categories, oppressor or oppressed. You see, the lack of peace in the Middle East has not caused this lack of peace, this sharp cultural division, but merely exposed it. And now social media is highlighting it. Now, perhaps I'm nailing my colours to the mast a little more than usual here. But if we want peace, if we truly want peace, and we want a Christmas in the future that remotely looks like peace, then the ironically binary nature of this complex oppressor-oppressed system must not become our framework of choice. We must do what we can to call out oppression, but to declare that everything is either or based on immutable realities such as skin color or race or gender, I don't think that's going to bring peace because it already isn't. So where's it all going? Well, that may feel like a roundabout with about six different exit points, but it does feel like we've reached a crossroads. Are we going to continue down this line of the culture wars, or will we be able to find a way to live with our deepest differences in our Western settings? Because make no mistake, we do have deep differences. The loose but still identifiable consensus of the past seems to have faded away. And what are we left with? We seem to be left with a fractured public square. We seem to be left with constant fights over who gets to control our public institutions. Actual war is now exposing how deep the culture war runs in places that never see a foot soldier. It's not some university fad. 
there are real implications for real people in other parts of the world around these things that we believe. And the fact that there will be no Christmas celebrations in Bethlehem this year shows that up. And yet, and yet, as we contemplate the coming of Christmas again, it's instructive that the birth of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel stories in the Bible's New Testament, don't come at a time of justice or equality. Indeed, one of the first things to occur in the story is what is known as the slaughter of the innocents, the time when King Herod, worried about a rival to the throne that the wise men had proclaimed to him, killed all the baby boys in the region where Jesus' birth had been predicted. The slaughter of the innocents. Both sides in the current conflict can bear testament to that. So Jesus and his mother and Joseph in the story end up fleeing a pogrom themselves. And Jesus was brought up in a time and place of upheaval and uncertainty. And yet it's not for no reason that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. The Christmas message of the angelic beings is God's peace to all upon whom his favour rests. The Roman Empire of Jesus' day thought that it had brought the peace, the Pax Romana as it was known. But how did it do that? By the sword and brutal suppression. Jesus, by contrast, would bring peace not through a sword, but through a cross. The point of the Christmas story is the Easter story. You see, the calls for peace at Christmas are worthy every year on television for all those 50 plus years that I've seen. They're worthy. But without the Prince of Peace, I would say that they're worthy but futile, unless the peace desired is the peace that the Prince of Peace brings. And regardless of what people might hope, no side of the culture war can usher in this peace, at least not without breaking a few eggs to make that particular omelette. No side will usher in that peace, regardless of its zealous desire. It will always create victims on the other side in its efforts to achieve some sort of peace. Christmas is a reminder that there cannot truly be peace on earth until God shows up. That first Christmas party I remember at British Enkelon, 1972, was at the very beginning of another round of civil war in Northern Ireland that claimed lots of lives. In what once seemed a strange idea to me, <laughs> the Catholics were the oppressed people and the Protestants were the oppressors. Now that's an idea that fits neatly with critical theory. But I've asked Catholic friends from Northern Ireland, and that's exactly how it felt. The sad reality is that war tore through both sides with the same devastating effect. It tore through the family members of friends of mine who moved to Australia too late to avoid the worst of the troubles when the father of the family was shot dead in his house. That war claimed the life of the mother of my wife's personal assistant in her practice, in the worst atrocity of the whole campaign that killed 29 people. It also killed the colleague of one of my closest friends in another dreadful bombing, and my friend suffers PTSD to this day. Christmas can't be a twee, cute, year-by-year -year call for peace. 
If it's to have any substance to it at all, it must be a true celebration of the Prince of Peace himself and a desire to see the kind of peace that he ushered in, one in which he holds out his hands to his enemies as an oppressed man and forgives them even when they don't deserve it, even when I don't deserve it. Only a deep realisation of that will ever bring the peace that you will inevitably see on your screens being called for on Christmas Day 2023. Podcast.